Join Greenbook at the 2024 Insight Innovation Exchange Conference Series. IIEX is your global hub for connections, inspiration, and innovative solutions in market research. Visit greenbook.org events to learn more about events in Asia, the Americas, and Europe. Use the code PODCAST for 20% off general admission on all upcoming events. everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Green Book Podcast. I'm Karen Lynch, happy to be hosting today and happy to be talking to our guest, Corrine Pepin, who I have interacted with online at least for the last two years here at Green Book. She is a regular contributor to our article ecosystem. I'm always thrilled to see she's actually one of our most prolific authors. We've published so many pieces by Corrine, and each one is a treat for the industry, true thought leadership. And again, just such a pleasure to have you on the show today. Welcome. Thank you. I'm super excited to be here. That's great. One of the things that I I saw on your LinkedIn bio is this phrase about how some people fell into market research. And for you, it was love at first sight, which is just a beautiful statement to your passion and emotion for the industry. So if you could just start things off by telling us a little bit about how did you fall in love with the industry and, and where are you with it today? Yeah, I, I noticed that a lot of people in our industry say they just kind of fell into it. It was like their third job and somehow, you know, they got into it. But for me, my background is in sociology. I have a, a graduate degree in sociology and I took a lot of research classes in college. So when I was introduced to SPSS, I was totally blown away by this whole thing, you know, by the power of statistics, by the power of surveys, by running cross tabs and just being able to say like, oh, males are more likely to do this, you know? So I knew I always wanted to do this. And that, that obsession with data quality also started out when I was in college. My very first job was research assistant for the tourism board of my city. And I was responsible for managing their face-to-face surveys with visitors. So my role was to coordinate the interviewers who would go out every day with their clipboard, because that's a long time ago. And they would ask questions to to tourists at different landmarks about their experience. So my, my role was to coordinate that and to check the surveys, the paper surveys at the end of the day to make sure everything looked good. So I came across this batch of surveys one day, and it just didn't feel right. And like, keep in mind, this is my very first research job. I mean, kind of like any job, (laughs) to be honest, but something didn't feel right. So I started looking into it. And what felt a bit off was that there were too many people describing themselves as homemakers. And now you're going to understand the homemakers got a shorter survey because we didn't ask about a bunch of occupation employment questions. So long story short, uh, the interviewer admitted she made these up. And she resigned. So I had to throw out all of her surveys, not just that batch, but everything, because how do you trust now that, you know, she did a good job before that day. And I started over. Yeah. Yeah. So then I never really looked at surveys and data sets the same way. So then fast forward to 2016, this is when I started noticing weird patterns in the data Uh, from the online sample that we collected. So this is not a new problem, right? Like 2016, I started wondering what is happening here? This looks weird. So I always like to lift the hood, you know, play around with the data set, try to understand what is happening here. 
because I think if you can understand the cause, then you can really fix the problem, you know, in the future. So then I started writing for Green Book, started being more active on LinkedIn and realized there are a lot of people that are into it as well. And more even so now than, you know, two years and a half ago when I started writing about it. Well, and I think that it's a true testament of what, you know, a true researcher will do is look for those anomalies and try to come up with the root cause of them and what is going on. I know that we talked quite candidly about our last wave of grit data and our our Green Book researcher noticed some anomalies in the open ends that led us to understand what were AI-generated responses. And it took really looking at them and not just trying to look at, okay, what are the numbers saying, but really looking at how the data was presented and looking at the quality of the responses. So that discernment of a true researcher is a very valuable asset at this present time when fraud is just coming at us in many different ways. For sure. And when you look at things in aggregate, you will miss things. It's a respondent level problem, right? It's, you know, you're going to miss, miss things if you just look at a percentage and say, oh, it feels about right. Yeah, but if half the people rated something really high and half the people rated it really low, it still averages out to being okay. But it doesn't mean that at a respondent level, it makes sense. Yeah, yeah. There's so much we can learn. I'm, I'm actually really excited, you know, shameless plug for our upcoming IAX health event, because there's a doctor that I'll be facilitating a fireside chat with who is going to be sharing how he looks at data. And it's it's definitely with the lens of sort of a, a medical researcher, right? A different type of scientist, if you will. And I'm really excited to hear that and learn from him about what practices we can put into place in, in the insights industry. So anyway, a little sidebar shout out for that. We'll put it in the show notes for those of you listening, because that talk I'm particularly excited about. You'll love it too, knowing, yeah, knowing, you, <laughs> knowing you the way I do, which is largely through our LinkedIn interactions. So by the way, find us both on LinkedIn because we have some fun conversations. But let's talk about the study that actually jumped out at me when you shared online this sort of research on research that you were participating in as a researcher to try to see what you can learn. Tell our audience what you did and, and why it caught my eye will become apparent. Yeah. So I started taking surveys, you know, as a panelist, and I did not go into this thinking, oh, I'm going to take surveys for two years and I'm going to figure out how much panelists make. Like, this is not what happened here. Honest to God, I was on Twitter. I saw an ad, I signed up <laughs> and I got eight panel invitations from that one ad that I clicked on, eight different panels. So I signed up on all of them. I'm not on all of them anymore because some of them I found better than others and I just kind of stuck with them. But I started taking surveys. I love surveys. And I, I really got into it because I realized there's a lot of problems with the data that can easily be explained if you understand the sampling ecosystem and the participant experience. So that's why I just kind of kept at it because I just, once you lift the hood, there's just so much to, you know, into this. And then I realized just kind of recently that one of the panel had a very good payout summary. And this is when I started digging into, well, how much did I make and how much does that work out to be per hour? Yeah. And I think what's interesting Another slight sidebar, but what's interesting about the process that you did is you really were thinking to yourself as somebody who is in, in the field of putting surveys out there, I would like to understand them from the inside out. And it's similar to 
my background is qualitative, not quantitative. So in the qualitative space, you know, we often would watch journalists, for example, to see how do they interview people on television or or how does this interview manifest in a written, you know, newspaper article or magazine article or, you know, what other areas can we can we watch how news, you know, on the street news interviewers approach their interview. And we learn from kind of really stepping in the world in different ways and interacting with our medium, which was the qualitative interview, from different angles and different perspectives. And if I ever had the chance to be interviewed, I would take it because I wanted to see what it felt like on my side. So it's it's a strong approach to to just sort of say, let's let's experience this because then you can embody the survey a little bit more, right? Yeah, for sure. And it's not even something that you can understand if you just sign up and do it one time. Like it, you have to be at it for like every day for a while. And so I know from my payouts that I took surveys 70 days in that year. So like 70 sessions, right? And I'm still learning. Like I, I can't say that I do that that many. Like right now I'm, I'm kind of doing other things, <laughs> but there's always something to learn. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's that's sort of a great a great segue into what did you learn? Right. So you learned a lot. So let's just kind of go layer by layer. What are some of the learnings in addition to just how much somebody you might have learned per hour if this were, you know, monetized that way? So I went into this with very low expectations, right? Because we know that respondents or panelists are not making a killing there. But I was still surprised that I ended up making 72 cents an hour, you know, once I did all the math. And I was surprised for two reasons. So one is most panel have like a point system. You know, you earn points and then you can redeem them into gift cards. But that is not very transparent. You don't know how much you're earning per survey or when you screen out. You know, you just know eventually you'll get your gift cards. So I was surprised, you know, at how little kind of I, I earned. And the other thing that surprised me is the system is also designed to paper complete. So it doesn't take into account the time you're trying to qualify for a survey, which is not little. These screeners are not short. So there's like the router thing that you have some questions to answer there. You get into the survey and then at a minimum, you'll have demographics. You'll have some qualifying questions like usage. And then sometimes and often you get some random stuff too that people just want to size or whatever, you know, whatever they're trying to do. Some random KPIs that have nothing to do with you screening into the survey. So you're like five, seven, 10 minutes into this, and then you screen out. So it's not just the 50 cents that you make when you complete, but then consider how much time you've wasted trying to get that 50 cents. This is what is pretty shocking because you're not really paid for this. So I can tell you, I was paid for screening out between one and four cents. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And the thing is, I want to I want to take a minute and just go back. The very fact that these are called incentives. We are trying to incentivize people participating in studies <laughs> that we're not looking for this to be their income, but we're trying to encourage participation. Yeah. And it 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 begs the question of how much is it worth to an individual for their participation? How much is an hour of my time worth or your time worth or a product consumer's time worth. Like it feels like the very word incentive 
is not necessarily active anymore. We're not really incentivizing people. Anyway, that could be a that could be a segue there. But is it really is it really worth it? And is that what participants are thinking? So the the, the other part is so I screened out seven times out of ten, right? So sixty eight percent of the time I screened out. So that's when you're not trying to lie to get into the survey, right? Success rate is only thirty two percent. So that that is also very <laughs> discouraging, I think. And I have had friends who signed up on surveys, on panels, and that is their first observation is this feels like a scam because I've been at this for like 20 minutes now and I am not qualifying for anything. So I think most people might try it out and then they might just leave. But until, and I don't know what the right amount is, you know, like I don't necessarily think it should be minimum wage or anything like that. Like it's more like a side hobby sort of thing. But as long as we don't pay people for their time or for the number of questions, then we'll never be committed to improving that experience because screening out is practically free. If you compare that to a profiling survey, so I earned five cents for profiling survey, which is more than when I screened out. So it's a very short-term view, I think, that we have, right? Like, we're not trying to build something sustainable for the future when we have a lot of great profiling data and then we can target people. We're just trying to make money on this job. So I don't know how much, like this is a really tough question, but the incentives are probably not really a, a motivation right now for people. Like it's not really making them want to stay in that system. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, you mentioned gift cards and I think sometimes about myself. It's, you know, when, when I have these conversations and I imagine what would it take for me? And I am, I am truly happy for, you know, a Starbucks gift card. I'm not going to lie. So <laughs> I love the idea that, Hey, I'll do whatever you want. Just buy me a cup of coffee. I still buy into that concept. Right. And, and maybe that's, that's not for everybody. You know, maybe the gift cards are truly compelling for some people, but what are some other things that you came across that are beyond kind of the point system that earns towards gift cards, anything you either came across or any ideas you have for what can be done to make this a more robust process for the participants? I think some people have tried donations. On the panels that I'm on, uh, don't know that it's an option. There's there's a lot of different gift cards you can have, like Amazon or Starbucks, but I don't think there's donations. I think ultimately though cash is king. I don't know if donations work. Or, or other things. Yeah, and I think that's probably very unique towards the type of study, right? If I am speculating now, this is not yeah. based on any study that I am currently a part of. But if I were talking to an audience, for example, doing some survey research for sustainability work or something like that, well, then maybe that sort of goes hand in hand with cause-based donations. So I think maybe it's maybe it's more appropriate, you know, if I'm doing cons a consumer packaged goods study, then, you know, what I'd actually like something that will allow me to engage in that particular industry myself. Or if I'm doing some sort of financial services, well, then sure wouldn't mind a discount on something. So maybe it's catering the incentive to whatever the type of study that you're in as one sort of thought. But I think the bottom line is, you know, how to how to enhance the participant experience right from the beginning, which is we value you and we value your time. Do you have any other kind of thoughts on what your journey in this process kind of revealed as far as the participant experience? Yeah. So 
I think the biggest pain point is this matching to surveys. So if we were able to match people to surveys faster, then they wouldn't be wasting so much time. But there's more to it. Uh, what I've noticed in my data is when the sample is really well targeted, you actually get better data because people are engaged with the topic, right? They're more thoughtful in it, open end. It's more relevant to them. So there's definitely a benefit there beyond not having some sort of annoying experience for them and wasting all this time. So I think that's a, that's a big one. And then the other thing is, I guess we need to talk about surveys because, you know, we're here to talk about surveys. You know, I, often, <laughs> I often hear that the surveys are terrible and the surveys are not great. But to be honest, it's not the worst part of this process, I think. But the first thing I noticed when I started this journey and taking surveys is how dated surveys look. You know, if you compare this to any user interface of any websites or apps that you use on a regular basis... It looks like a time machine to like 1999 or something. And what's frustrating is that I know there's some very nice survey platforms out there. You know, I use them, but the mainstream, you know, out there, that's not that, right? There are platforms that have been around for a long time and they have all the features you can have. Like they are very functional. Okay. They have coin joint, they have lease field, they have everything that you need. They're just not pretty. It's like there's been no investment in UI. So I've started designing my surveys in PowerPoint myself, because imagine if we spend as much time on surveys as we spend on client deliverables, you know, on reports, on proposal, they would look so much better, but it's so hard to do this. You know, you need to have a very patient programmer because you can't do it yourself, you know, tool for that. And then you just, you know, you go in like you were designing a report with icons and people and like you have a more conversational tone. But I think it's not that hard, right? You can automate this. You just need to have nicer templates. <laughs> but I don't think there are any UX designer that have ever tried to, to, you know, design surveys. Their programmer is more like, okay, well, the logic is working. So there's nothing wrong with the survey. <laughs> Yeah, that's a very interesting point. Certainly in our industry where we, you know, we do have, you know, UX researchers and and UI researchers who are, you know, working on, you know, doing the surveys to see how nice a platform the platform interaction can be or how a user might actually experience going online to a site or or via an app, but it's really interesting to apply that same uh, designer designer um expertise to the surveys that are that are not necessarily just user research. So it's a very interesting concept. I like it very much. So let that, you know, for all of you UX, UX researchers listening in on this, let that kind of simmer up there and see if you can't maybe try to encourage that. I think it's a really cool, cool thought, Karine. Thank you for sharing it. Any other kind of findings before I dig into sort of back to, to being a participant and what that was like? Any other kind of higher, higher level findings coming out of this work? So I think one thing about how the whole system is designed is that we designed this system that you can only be successful in it if you lie and if, if you have the volume, right? You're not going to go in for 50 cents a day. You know, I earned $51 and it took me about 300 survey attempts to do this, okay? So that's the proportion we're looking at. So anyone 
who wants to, to make this worth their while is sort of encouraged. Maybe if they had good intent to begin with, I don't know. But you kind of kind of get into it. You're like, well, you know, I'm kind of the decision maker on this, I guess. You know, like we've just designed this thing and now we're, I don't know how we, we go back, right? But until we are committed to validating the person's identity, right? And to not encourage them to do a lot of surveys, you know, then they will never get out of this. And I think what you're, what you're talking about here is the idea that it's all connected. The idea that how much is somebody's time worth? And, you know, I think if I was ever asked to participate in a research initiative and it was not going to give me a, an incentive of a few hundred dollars, for example, you know, like if I was going to do an interview and it wasn't, I wasn't paid, you know, professional executive rates or something, I'd be like, I just don't have the time for that. What we're talking about is making participants feel like, oh yeah, this would be nice extra money to have on hand. We're not talking about them making a living. We don't want that, but we do want people to feel that this would be good if I'm qualified, instead of trying to say, how do I qualify because I'm a little desperate for this income? And I think that's where, and and there's there's so many things that I know that some of you have, have followed right now where I've been talking to Carrie Hecht and, and Mickey Hill about the idea that there are people who are actively learning how to be deceptive in this space. They're learning how to be dishonest so that they can qualify for more. That's very different. Overstating how much they use a product, for example, that is not the spirit of why companies suggest we talk to people who have used a product three or four times a week. You know, we don't want people to overinflate just to qualify. We want to talk to people who are absolutely, you know, you know, heavy product users. So maybe we've done a poor job explaining to people why the criteria matters, why the decisions made on the other side are actually valuable and not invaluable. Like it just seems that there's more that we can do beyond just the incentive program, but about maybe our transparency, why we care about heavy usage versus light usage versus no usage and non-users. I don't know. I, I just think that the whole the whole ecosystem needs everyone to take a hard look at to try to say what else might be a contributing factor to this level of fraud and poor data quality. Had, did you have any other thoughts about it, like what else we can be doing? Well, I think you have a head start with Qual because you have more of a relationship with that person. People are so anonymous, right, on these online panels. It's very difficult, I think. I think there's a huge lack of trust, to be honest, because you might be recruited on one panel, right? You're like, okay, I signed up for this panel. And then next thing you know, you're like thrown into some router, bounced around, and then you end up somewhere. And I think what this does is that both the panel and the participant feel anonymous in here, right? The panel doesn't really feel responsible for the experience because Sometimes they will be their panelists answering the survey. Sometimes they will not. And then the panelists knows there's really no way to track them down. There's really no way to hold them accountable, you know, that much for their bad surveys. So I think this anonymity and this lack of trust in general in the system is one of the things that contributes to fraud as well. 
Yeah. It's like a chicken and egg scenario of which came first. Is it is it that we need to be more honest with participants so that they are then more honest with us, but we need to trust them in order to, to reveal more information? So it's really quite cyclical about how do we trust one another in this space? How do we re-get to a place where there's trust between both parties, meaning the, the one initiating the survey and then the one we're hoping to participate in the survey? It's a quandary. <laughs> and ultimately, this will take time and this will take money. Yeah. It's, it's a long game, you know, and yeah. we're not really playing a long game. We're just thinking of it as like job, like this is the project, this is the job, just going to get this done. Yeah. And it's interesting you bring up money because certainly Lenny Murphy and I have been talking about the fact that these efforts will cost more. And it's going to be really hard for people to wrangle the fact that good quality data we have to invest in it. Therefore, prices are not going to lower. It's going to become more and more expensive to put some measures in place to ensure data quality. And prices may go up for research because just because you might think that we have economies of scale with some AI support moving forward, we have to pay more money. It is going to become more expensive to do the research at hand. So it's going to be an interesting challenge that the entire industry has to just face. We have to stop chasing low-cost provider, low-cost sample, low-cost recruitment. Low, you know, We just can't go after it being cheaper. We have to lean towards quality in the trifecta of faster, better, cheaper. We, we just can't sacrifice quality. That's just a lesson that, that we've learned in, in many ways a hard way. But I think we're already paying for it, though. We just don't know, right? Because there's all these hidden costs. You know, all the time that we spend cleaning the data is not free. But because we're so focused on CPIs that we completely lose sight of all of the other costs that poor data quality leads to, like the obvious one is obviously the researcher's time, but the biases that we introduce in the data too, right? When we sit here and we're like, oh, is this good enough? Is this a real person? Is this not a real person? Okay, now I'm going to remove this person. And I just, I'm obsessed with this because I don't want to create more biases, right? I want to make the right call. You know, someone is really not paying attention or someone is really a click farm. But then there's also, you know, what's the, the cost of bad business decisions? What's the cost of doubts, right? There's so much more than the CPI. But as long as we just focus on this thing, on the CPI, we're not seeing the big picture. It's true. And those two things, the the cost of bad business decisions based on data that isn't clean or that is accurate, that just is not of the utmost quality. I don't think you can put a price on on that. I mean, you know, it could it could be catastrophic if that data isn't clean. And I and I do feel that in many proposals that are sent out, more emphasis in the proposal process needs to be on efforts being taken to make sure that the data is of quality. I know that, again, yes, I was on the qual side. I also worked for a full-service company for a while. And I think, you know, looking back, I wish I could go back and redo some of those proposals to include that as a feature benefit of working for that company was the fact that we were working hard to mitigate the risk of bad data. Anyway, I, I put that out there too. I just think that can be talked about and is a proof point for a higher, perhaps, you know, bid in that proposal. Well, what I find challenging is that everybody says they have the best data quality. So, so this is a really like weird situation to be in because 
I know, I mean, I, I think I have better data quality because I care so much, right? Like it has to be better. But then someone else is going to say, like, we have better data quality. We also use a fraud detection software. We also do this. We also do that. So unless you're like some sort of expert and you can really tell, like, okay, what is just marketing and what do they actually do? And the other thing that you can't really tell is there's a lot of decisions that you make in this process, right? You, you can have a fraud detection software. Doesn't mean that you have it on. It doesn't mean that you know, your threshold is not 2%, you know? So, but unless the buyer is very savvy, like how would they know this? You know, we're not really good at self-regulating ourselves. You know, at what point, at what point the industry says, okay, well, this is kind of lying, you know, you're kind of not doing this, you know, and this person is doing the right thing. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting quandary. And I feel like, you know, my call to action for everybody listening is take a look at your practices see what's in place. If you are a, a buyer, take a look at your partner's practices, see what's in place and, and, you know, have that conversation right before the project begins, have the conversation in advance. I think one of the habits of highly successful people is to begin with the end in mind. Well, let's launch all of the projects, getting a step ahead of that saying, what do we need to do to ensure that the quality of our data is spot on to help inform those business decisions that we want to make? as a result of this work? And what are the, the steps we need to put into place to make sure that at the very end of the day, we have a, you know, a research project and research results that we feel really confident in and good about? Anyway, I'm sure I'm, I'm, you know, I'm standing on the grandstand there with that as a, as a not current research practitioner. I'm sure you have more advice as well for the industry. So let's go there before we wrap. What are kind of high-level takeaways and, and your call to action to the industry? Well, I think we've We've been talking about data quality a lot, right, in the past two years. And I think that was sort of the goal was to raise awareness. So I think we need to now move to solutions. I mean, I'm ready to move to solutions. Like awareness is done now. Like <laughs> we're beating a dead horse. We know what's happening. We know it's bad. But what are the alternatives, right? There just aren't many. And on the B2B side, you can do a custom recruit. You know, it will cost you money, but your data will be beautiful you know, there's going to be barely any cleaning to do. The question is, what do you do on the consumer side where we've been used to getting 2000 of everything because it's so cheap? So why not? So we've created all this demand out there, so much demand. So we can't, I mean, can we start validating every single person? I don't know. But I know I've turned to other sources that are not, you know, traditional online panels for consumer uh, research as well. But that's the question is, how do you scale this model? And not necessarily so that it's not $200 per respondent. Obviously, like we can't pay that, but it's also the speed. Because I've looked at, at CRM sample and panel sample, right? And the real people that are not panelists are very different. So if, if there were a system with only real people and no panelists, I don't know that this is actually going to work for industry because the real people don't lie. So they screen out a lot, right? The real people are slower at taking the surveys. So your 20-minute survey is like 26 minutes for them, okay? Because they don't know the patterns, the question, and they drop out a lot. They have very little patience for this. Okay, can we find 2,000 people like not in the mindset that they're doing the survey about ketchup or whatever, you know, I think that's also going to 
we're going to run into problems with feasibility. So I think we'll need to turn to more passive behavioral data where we can. You know, I don't know if I would want to open the whole synthetic sample. Like I'm not an expert on it, but for those projects where it's a good fit, it might actually help decrease all the demand on panelists, right? Which is good ultimately if, if that does the job, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. It's so funny you brought up. I feel like I just commented on something else also on LinkedIn today about, you know, right now everyone's really worried about AI and synthetic data. And I'm like, I think we, we skipped over our worry about data quality and human and then the human factor. Like, let's, let's, let's remember we had this other issue to deal with also. I know, I know it's a, you know, we're not comparing here, like, you know, amazing data quality to AI. You know, that's not the comparison, you know, and I, I think there's a role to play for, for everybody here. More pressure on the researchers to be savvy, right? And, and to, to really know what they're doing and to really have a skill set that involves critical thinking. So anyway, it's just so great to talk to somebody who has all of that. So I appreciate you being here for sure. Any questions that, or, or topic areas that we didn't get to before we start to wrap? Do you want to share anything with our audience that you know, wasn't on the brief or that you have kind of coming down the pike for yourself? This is a great time for you to kind of bring up some other things. Well, as we wrap up, I'm excited about what's coming up in 2024 for myself because I'm starting something new with a qualitative colleague who is equally passionate about quality and research as I am. So we're excited about that. We're still kind of figuring out exactly what the offering is going to be, but we both have 20 years of experience. So we can do any hard studies. There's nothing we haven't seen before. We can do the whole full service thing. But we like to call ourselves a non-agency agency because we want to be agile. We want to be flexible. And we really want to help in-house researchers. We feel there's got to be some white space between we're doing everything internally. We can do it, but we're at capacity. You know, by the time it's time to actually socialize the data, work with stakeholders, we're tired, right? And the other extreme being, here's $200,000 to run this. You know, there is a way to evolve this full service model when you're agile, when you don't have all the overheads and everything else, you know, so I think, I think this is where we're going with this. And we're really excited to see like how we can evolve full service. That's great. And I'm excited to watch it unfold as well. So good (laughs) luck to you in that venture. Um, I will be paying attention and I look forward to learning more through all of our social channels. What a pleasure to have you here today. Uh, such it was great, great conversation. Yeah. Anything else that, that you want to add? Anything else you're looking forward to besides your new business venture? <laughs> Anything else that 2024 will bring your way? <laughs> oh, God. I've, um, I've committed myself to reviewing all the academic papers about data quality. That I want to see, like, exactly, like, how do other fields do it? You know, what do they consider good? Have they, have they done tests, you know, to... Has there been anyone doing a test to know if straight liners really work? No, I don't think we've explored this enough. So that is something else that's on my agenda. I've committed to spending a hundred hours doing this, which I figured two hours a week, you know, no big deal. Yeah, totally doable. I'm already four (laughs) weeks behind here. (laughs) But this will happen. This will happen for sure. That's great. That's great. And ladies and gentlemen, that is true thought leadership. Somebody who has such a growth mindset that they're like, and by the way, I will also take on this task of 
feeding my brain with academic papers. So, Kareen, such a pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. My pleasure. I also want to shout out to Natalie Push, our podcast producer. Thank you, Natalie, for everything you do for this show. To our editor, Big Bad Audio. And of course, to you, our listeners, thank you for tuning in each week. I love doing this. I know Lenny loves doing it too. And we do it for you and because of you. So thank you. Have a great rest of your week, everyone. Join Greenbook for the 2024 Insight Innovation Exchange. This global conference series, also known as IIEX, is where connections are made, inspiration is found, and innovative solutions are discovered. With more than 90% of attendees using IIEX Insights to shape strategic business decisions, the return on investment is undeniable. Whether you're in Asia-Pacific, North America, Europe, or Latin America, IIEX is your gateway to the latest market research best practices, tech innovation, and strategies for transporting insights into action. Nurture your career and business with insights from across the globe. And here's a bonus. Use the special code PODCAST to save 20% on general admission for all IIEX events. Visit greenbook.org events today to learn more and register. See you there.